Well, welcome everybody, and those of you online, those here in the room. We're uh, in the study of the patriarchs in uh, in Genesis, and I want to pick up on chapter twenty-eight and uh, verse uh, ten. Now, if you're you're interested, you know the map that's on page twenty-three in your note packet. I will refer to that if that's you know if you're not interested in it, don't don't worry about it. But we are. We're at a point in the narrative of, of the patriarch Jacob where uh, it's almost unexpected in, in the sense that God makes a decision to shower his grace upon Jacob at this point. Because you know what's happened in the previous chapters, all of the deception and conniving of Jacob and his mother, Rebecca, where he took the birthright through a bowl of soup and blessing of his father, Isaac, uh, by a, a deception as well. And so he's headed to Haran in the province called Patamaram, which is way up north. Again, if you are following that or you're interested in that, you can see on the map on page 23, this map, it has way up in what would be your corner, the northeastern corner, you'll see Patamaram. From Beersheba to Patamaram, as the crow flies, it's about 500 miles undoubtedly with some of the, the things that he had to do to get there. It may have been long. It's a significant trip. So he has moved north, and this is another thing on the map you can see. He's at an area, called, a town, a community, village called Luz, L-U-Z. He will rename that Bethel, Beit El, Bethel, the house of God. Why does he rename that? A Canaanite town will rename Bethel because of what happens to him there. This is a very, very important point in Jacob's life. Here we see the grace of God poured out on Jacob. He does not deserve this. He certainly didn't earn it or merit it. Yet God is going to reestablish with him the covenant. And that's the importance of this for you and me to always remember this. God did not choose Abraham or Isaac or now Jacob because they deserved it, because they merited it. He chose them because he chose them. And if you go to Romans chapter 9, Paul makes much of this, that you certainly would not say that Jacob deserved to be the covenant son. But God chose him. And God did not choose Esau. And that's the divine sovereignty part of the railroad tracks. That's what God has chosen to do. And that's God's right suit. And that's one of the things in chapter 9 of Romans, uh, the book of Romans. But Paul's defining, uh, defending there's God's sovereign freedom to do what he wants. Now, he doesn't do anything. He never does anything that's unjust or inequitable or unfair. He's perfect in all his attributes. But here we see this exhibited in Jacob. And so if we pick up in verse uh, 10, Jacob left Beersheba. That's where his father and grandfather had put their main, their main tent and went to Haran. Again, that's up north. I just pointed it out. And he came to a certain place and stayed there at night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, that's an interesting comment, and that's very important because of what's going to happen down in verse 18 with that stone. You'll see. This is a sidebar. This has nothing to do with the text. But of all the things to choose for a pillow, would you choose a stone? Seriously, you know, 
I don't know about you, but if my neck isn't quite right during the night, I can get kind of a stiff neck by the time I wake up. I'd be devastated with a stiff neck if I slept on a stone. And it's just, it's an interesting, it's an interesting comment that he chooses a stone and sleeps on it because no matter what type of stone it is, it's not soft. <laughs> but nonetheless, but that's important because of what happens in verse 18. And that's probably why Moses chooses to tell us this. Verse 12. And he dreamed and behold. Now there are three things that are extremely important for us to understand about this dream. Point number one about the dream. Behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth to the top of it reached heaven. Now, there is an awful lot of discussion when you get into the text and you read all the Hebrew stuff, whether the ladder is the right way to translate it or not. This is the point. There's now a connection between heaven and earth. Now, Jacob sees a ladder, some connection between where he is and where God is. Second thing to observe, and behold, angels, the angels of God, were ascending and descending upon it. So whatever that is, that structure, that ladder, whatever that is, angels are going up. And so what does that mean? It means that there's now a viable, robust, living connection between heaven and earth. And then the third thing to observe is at the beginning of verse 13. Behold, the Lord stood above it. Now, the, the language there, again, it's a little hard, but the language there seems to be, again, let's just imagine it is a ladder. This ladder, the angels are ascending and descending upon it. At the top of this ladder is the Lord. Now, the term, the title, um, the name for God there is Yahweh. Now, that's an important point, too, because remember, Yahweh is the name of God, it's self-sufficient, self-existent, great I am. So here's the Lord of the universe standing at the top of this ladder. So, I mean, that's, a, that's almost an incomprehensible dream. But it's illustrating something. God has smashed into Jacob's life. God is intervening in Jacob's life. God is about to reveal something to Jacob. And again, I, I stress this. This is an example of God's grace. Based on everything we've read about Jacob and everything up to this point, you would conclude, well, he doesn't deserve this. But God's going to deal with Jacob, but he's going to remind Jacob here, you are the covenant son, because I chose you to be the covenant son. And so what you see, and I'm going to read these verses now in totality, then we'll come back and sort of take them apart. But if we look now at the middle of verse 13 and going on, and he said, again, the picture apparently is Yahweh is standing at the top of the ladder. I am Yahweh, the Elohim of Abraham. I'm using those Hebrew titles. That's quite important. I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Let me stop there before we look at verse 15. What did God just summarize? The Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. <clears throat> God just summarized. 
And didn't you know, he just introduce himself to Jacob? Jacob probably wasn't aware of that, was he? Oh, absolutely he was. Yes, Woody. Uh, you mean in terms of the content of the Abrahamic covenant? No, what I meant was the Lord. Is that the first time the Lord announced his that he was oh. there to Jacob? That Yes. This, if I'm understanding your question, Woody, this would be the first time that God would be speaking to Jacob about the Abrahamic covenant. And really, it's the first time, as far as we know, that God is directly speaking to it, to Jacob. Is that what you're asking? Yes, sir. Okay, good. Well, then we're tracking. So, I mean, this is really an important point, because now God has reiterated to Jacob what he had said to Isaac, his father, and to Abraham, his grandfather. And so this is, this is really important for you and me in the big picture of Scripture. As God had said to Abraham, his descendant, He's passing this covenant arrangement on to the grandson of Abraham, Jacob is his grandson. And so you, you see this. It, I don't know. Have, the text doesn't say specifically how Jacob responds to this. He's going to worship. He's going to be in all of this. But this would have been an amazing thing for him to hear because he's, he wanted this. He knew he was the covenant son, but he had connived his way in deceptive practices to get to this point of blessing. Now, God is saying, in effect, even though you did this, you are still the covenant son. God is going to deal with this deception. God is going to deal with his line. That's coming up. But God is simply stating, you are the covenant son. And those just astonishing aspects of the Abrahamic covenant, which are, are just reiterated. So you're saying it was the first time he said this directly? As far as we can tell from the text, the first time he says this directly to Jacob. And he said it directly to Isaac? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's right, absolutely. And that will also be reiterated, I shouldn't say, it should, I should say iterated, I guess. But anyway, it will be also stated to the 12 sons of, Abraham, of Jacob, which we'll, we're going to get to that at the very end of the book of, of Genesis. So this is um, explaining and, and applying God's grace to Jacob in terms of the Abrahamic covenant. And then he goes on and says, to, in effect, makes a promise to Jacob. He is God, makes a promise to Jacob, verse 15. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Why was it important for God to state this to Jacob? To get his attention would be one thing. All right. Because he had been wayward. Okay. To get his to get his attention. And I think he did that. Is there any other thing that you can perhaps discern? Why was this important for Jacob to hear this? He's on the run. He's on the run. And on the run, he's going to go outside of the covenant land. He's way up north. He's outside of the covenant land. God has just said, here's the covenant promise. But Jacob's leaving it all. <laughs> he's getting out of the country. He's going to another land. Plus, and remember this, why is he running? 
Because of Esau. Esau had said, I'm going to kill him. He said to his father, I'm going to kill him. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> Jacob is not going to Padam at an Aram because he wants to. He isn't choosing to go on holiday up there. He's running from Esau. And his mother's encouragement, his father's encouragement, and all that stuff. But this is still, and God's just said, I'm going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant to you. And, and Jacob, I'm saying, but I'm leaving the land. What do you mean? I'm leaving. I'm getting out of this place. God says, now listen, I'm going to be with you, which is the first thing he promises. I'm going to be with you. I will keep you. That translation is a good one, I will keep you. But that word is a protective word. I'm going to keep you, meaning I'm going to keep you safe and secure. That's the idea of that. And then I will bring you back to this one. You're leaving, but it's temporary. I will bring you back. And then he, he states again, I will, I will not leave you until I have fulfilled what I promised you is what he just said. So that would have been, a, I think, a source of, of, of real comfort for Jacob in the sense that he hears the covenant promises and he hears God's promise of protection, which I think he needed to hear that. Despite all he had done, and he's going to face some things he's never faced before, so I'm going to out-trick him in just a little bit. So it's, it's just an important turning point in his life. This is Jacob. Let me put it another way. This is God beginning the transformation of Jacob. It's going to continue in the chapters that follow. He is beginning the transformation of Jacob. And I think it's, it's just a, it's a wonderful um, illustration how often... God deals with us. He can deal with us in the severe hand of discipline, as he will with Jacob, but out of compassion and out of love for us. We are his. We belong to him. Jacob is God's. God chose him. And God is not going to let him get away with his deception, his lying, and his conniving. God will be severe in his discipline, but he does that out of compassion. Remember the words of Hebrews 12. God's discipline, his chastening, proves that we're his child and proves that he loves us. That's the argument of Hebrews 12. You see that in Jacob's life. This is what God is doing. He's beginning the transformation of Jacob. Okay? Isn't that true of our salvation, too, well, for us, uh, yes, I, I would, yes, I would actually say that is a very important promise in our process of sanctification. That as God saves us, the words of Paul justifies us, then that process of sanctification, there's always that comfort and assurance God's never going to leave us, never forsake us. All the, the things that Jesus says that are so important. Is this discipline reminds me of my father. I got quite a few spankings, but, and I didn't like them. But looking back, they were in love. I, they, I was never beaten. I was spanked because I did something wrong. And I tried, and I think we all did with our children. Sometimes it's hard to control your anger and make it a, a good punishment, not a bad 
first of all, all of us in this room find it very, very difficult to do ever do anything that deserves to be spanked. We're shocked at that. But the second thing is, um, it is, it is so important. And I know in, in raising my kids, that was always there were times when that was really difficult. When we discipline our children, whatever that is, the nature of it, the purpose of it, and all that stuff, it always has the goal of of restoration. It's to restore. And that's one of the things that, unfortunately, I think outside of, often outside of people's faith, is the, is the discipline is just punitive. It's just punished. punished. That, if that's your perspective, you're the wrong, but you don't have the biblical perspective on discipline. The biblical perspective is not punitive. It's always restorative. That's always God's purpose. And so it can, and it is, and the Apostle Paul uses that word, it can be severe to get our attention and to correct us, but it's always restorative. And that's, an, that's a valuable thing for us when we're working with people, especially our children. It's interesting to engage in the discipline of your grandchildren. It's a very different <laughs> methodology, though. It really is. But I'm not going to say any more about that. <laughs> Wouldn't it be wonderful, though, if the Lord spoke to us as directly as he did mm-hmm. Uh, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the sense that, yeah, I mean, in 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 a sense, Jimmy does through his word, but that audible, direct conversation, we can audibly talk to the Lord at all times, but to have that audible response. But so it's many coming. times in life, you know, there are questions about what's the right mm. path, what's the right thing to do, mm. and you know, general principles in Scripture, but. And to have them firm like yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Then verse 16. Okay, so you have the reaffirmation of the promise, the covenant. And you have the promise of God to take care of him, protect him, etc. How does Jacob respond? This is quite important. Verse 16. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely... The Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And that's, a, that's an, an interesting response. What does he mean, and I did not know it? He wasn't expecting to meet God at this point. That's what he means by that. He wasn't expecting this. But surely, Yahweh has spoken. That's the language there. And he was afraid. Now the word uh, afraid there, the noun fear or the verb, you are fearing something, whatever. Um, Most of the times, and I would understand it to mean it here, it's a worship word. It's a response to God. It's a response to what happened to him. And, uh, you, you know, you think of uh, some of the, the, the verses in the, in the wisdom literature of, of the Old Testament. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Another verse says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And all that kind of stuff, you, you, you don't see fear there as, oh, I'm cowering, you know, in fear of it, it is in a little bit of that, but it's much more. It's an awesome. It's this is a worshipful response of Jacob, and we know that because of what he does. How awesome 
is this place? And ESV is a translation I read from. So how awesome is that? That's a, that's a response of adoration. That's a response of worship. There is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And so he's reflecting on what he saw, the, the ladder, the angels ascending, et cetera, God standing at the top and so on. So he's, he's been exposed to, he has seen, he has experienced a revelation of God. He has audibly heard God speak. He's heard God review the covenant promises and make the promise that will be with him and all that. And so he's responding worshipfully. He's trying to grasp at the right words to say. And then in verse 18, through the end of this section, verse 22, we see Jacob respond in three ways. Worship, commemoration, and dedication. First of all, in verse 18, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put upon his head, that he had put under his head, which takes us back to, to verse 11, and set up it for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. Now, that is, that is really weird. That's really strange for you and me to even understand that. But in effect, what he did is he took the stone in which he had laid his head, and he, it, it affects like an altar. And it's what's called, now you're ready, this is a big word, it's an oblation. He pours out an oblation. It's a worshipful thing that was done as a part of, of the ancient, uh, ancient world in, in terms of the Jewish people at this point. So it's, he's, it's, he's pouring oil. It's an act of worship. It's an act of worship that God has intervened in his life, has spoken to him, and so... He doesn't have animals in which he can sacrifice to God, but he has the oil that he uses for cooking and things like that because he has a long trip, and he pours out an oblation to God. It's, it's in effect like a sacrifice. And when you read in Leviticus and so on and all the different sacrifices of Israel, you will see there are a number of different instances after the burnt offering, or depending on what's going on, the part of the earth, you'll pour out an oblation on the altar. That's what it's called. Again, I, I'm getting technical, I'm probably boring you and lost you, but this, I want you to see this as an act of worship. It's, it's, it's an odd way for you and me in the 21st century to think of it, but it's an expression, a, a demonstrable demonstration of worship because of what God has done. He called the name of that place. Beit El, Bethel. That's Hebrew for the house of God. Now, he had just seen the gateway into heaven, the ladder, etc. So, understandably, he will call this the house of God, Beit El. What's really interesting is the second part of verse 19, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Now, that's, that's really interesting, man, because... Moses is telling us, this is exactly, you can see it on that map, this is exactly the point of a Canaanite city was. Jacob's just renamed it. Beit El. What is the destiny of the Jewish people? This land. God has promised that. Now, this is, the year is 1930 B.C., 
they will not be able to claim this until 1399 BC. That's when the conquest of Joshua is completed. But already, and this is, this is why this is important, this is an act of faith on Jacob's part. God had promised his grandfather this land. He reiterated that promise to Isaac, this land. He just stated it again to Jacob, this land. So Jacob renames a Canaanite city, Beit El, Bethel, the house of God. This is God's. Does that stick? Yes. The fact that he named it? Yes. How does that stick? Well, it will be known now through the rest of the Bible as Bethel. And it will will be called that, and that will be a major, that will be a major worship center. Uh, I shouldn't say worship center. A major city. Actually, it will become a worship center in the northern kingdom. It's a very important city, and it is associated with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's associated with the patriarch. It is the area close to the area where Jacob, uh, excuse me, where Abraham was. It was uh, in Isaac as well, but it is a very important. He is renaming it, and it's the, it's it's the, the symbol of this. This is Canaanite territory. He just gave it a Hebrew name. It's now dedicated to Yahweh. It's dedicated to one true and only God. It's very very important. It's a symbol because no Jews live there. No Jews live there yet. I mean, the only Jews are down in Beersheba. <laughs> With Isaac and, and, and his wife and all that. Was this good man fertile? <laughs> uh, it, is, it is not desert, but it's it's not the rich the rich farmland that you will see in Galilee, which is farther north. Uh, this uh, it's 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 good, but it's not the rich rich farmland that comes later. Secondly, verse twenty commemoration. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, as he had promised, I will, it, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Whoa. How should we understand that? Bargaining again? <laughs> Is he bargaining with God here? Because when you read it in English, you have the beginning of the conditional clause and the ending of the conditional clause, if, then, if, then. Follow me? <clears throat> but we have to be careful here. In English, it sounds like he's conniving again. He's bargaining again with God. That's not necessarily the way the grammar of this could be understood. You could legitimately translate it this way. Since God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go and will Give me bread, eat, clothing to wear. What God just promised to him, 
which we read about in verse 15, 16 and following. Then the Lord shall be my God. In other words, it's a little bit like this. God promised all this to me. And since he made that promise to me, then he's my God. You see the difference? There's a difference in the language there. There's a difference in the way you think about that. Jacob is stating something that he believes in faith because God had promised it to him. Then the Lord is my God. He, he, see, bought in, he bought into the whole thing, didn't he? Jacob well, that, and, yeah, and yes. believed. Yes, Woody. I, I, would, I would suggest that he is understanding, he, Jacob, is understanding what God had said. He's believing what God has said and affirming that Yahweh is his Elohim, that Yahweh is his God. So he... In English, it sounds like he's bargaining. The Hebrew is reaff he's reaffirming. I mean, it is correct to translate it, but he's reaffirming what God had said, and therefore reaffirming, he is my God. He's not saying, well, I'm just going to sit around and see now in the next couple of months whether he really is my God or not. I haven't settled on that question yet. It's still up in the air. Is that really what he's communicating? And that's, I'm arguing he isn't. Did I lose you, or are you with me? I'm with you. I'm with you. That's <laughs> all right. That's okay. He's got, I mean, he's got a character that we have looked at for several chapters now. And he's kind of a scoundrel in some ways, right? <clears throat> If, 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 if God comes to talk to you, maybe it kind of, kind of puts religion in you. He's pretty steeped in his way. Well, Jim, I think this is part of the this is part of the, the, the struggle in how to deal with the grammar of this passage because of all the background we have with Jacob. You're, you're naturally and understandably skeptical. And I am too. Hey, Jim, is uh, Bethel, was that near Bethlehem or? Is oh, no, no, no. going to be Bethlehem or? No, no, it's not. Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem. And uh, okay. I don't, I'm pretty sure it isn't on the map that I've given you here. Um, no, it isn't. Um, if you look at the map on page 23, the, the, the one that, enlarges okay. that little that little section with the number 22 over it you can okay. you can see where the word canaan is written it's opposite the first the second a you'll see jerusalem and then north of jerusalem is bethel or you'll see in parenthesis laws bethel is north of this map is is covering a lot of territory bethel in terms of jerusalem is about oh, approximately 40 miles north of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is four miles south of Jerusalem, about four and a half miles, four and a half miles south of Jerusalem. And on this map, you don't even see it uh, on that, that small map. So does that answer your question? 
Yes. And does, uh, like, what does Bethel stand for or mean? Uh, house of God. House of God, that's right. Okay. Yes. The, the Hebrew word for house is Beit, and Ale is, is one of the titles of God. Bethel. Okay. Oh, we haven't gotten there yet. Verse 22 I'm... sounds a little conditional to me as well. Okay, we're about to get to that. <laughs> and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So the, the point of verse 22, there are two aspects of verse 22. <clears throat> Number one is that stone that he had slept on and that he poured the oblation on, which sort of like a little altar. He sets up as a pillar. What does that mean? It's like a monument. He sets it up as a pillar. It's a monument. Yeah, it's really, God is really into monuments. He's really into symbols. He really is. You see all over the, all over the Bible. You know, um, Joseph, uh, Jacob, uh, Joshua leads the uh, children of Israel across the Jordan River, and he built a 12-part monument for each one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's, so every time somebody sees that, you ask, why is that there? And Joshua says, you tell them what just happened. And so this is just a monument. It's a little, it's a little celebration. It's a tactile, observable stone of dedication that God did this for me. This is Beit El. And then he makes a promise to God. And of all that you give me, I will give the tenth to you. Now, um, let's think about that for a minute. Let's think about it at several levels. This is an interesting thing to try to understand. But if we can go back to Genesis 14, and that's going back a ways now. But you remember Genesis 14, Abraham has just rescued Lot from Kedileomer. Remember those guys that kidnapped him and take him way up north to Dan and all that? And he rescues him. And as Abraham and Lot and all those guys are making their way down south, they come close to the city of Jebus, Salem. And a priest comes out who's king of Salem. What was his name? Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. What does Abraham do? He gives Melchizedek the tenth of all the spoil from raiding Kedileomer and rescuing Lot. And he said, where does that come from? Because the Mosaic Covenant hasn't been written yet. The Mosaic Law hasn't even been established yet. So what you see, apparently, and the mystery, the origin of this is a mystery in terms of the Bible. But an act of worship and dedication to God is to give a tenth of material blessing to him. And that's what Jacob is doing. You promised to take care of me. You promised you promise to bring me back to the land. Everything you give me, God, I'm going to give you a tenth of it. That is an act of dedication. That is an act of worship. That is a covenant promise that Jacob makes. Now, we, it doesn't mean he didn't do it. We don't have any evidence that he did it. You know, we don't have any evidence where it will be recorded six more times that God blessed him and he gave it to him. But it's, it doesn't mean he didn't do it. But what we're seeing here is Jacob is responding to this quite astonishing event in his life 
with worship. And however you understand verse 20, it's a vow. He's making a vow to God. However you understand that, and he's dedicated. Built a little tiny memorial to God, and he makes a promise to God. You made these promises. You're going to take care of me and bless me. Every material blessing you give me, I'm going to give you 10%. A tenth of them. Is that where our, all our tithing comes from? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's uh, you know it's it's made a part of the Mosaic covenant. You, you see that in Exodus and Leviticus yes. and all those other places. And then, um, <clears throat> yes, it's the beginning okay. of it. Thank you for not asking whether we should tithe today. I'm, I'm really grateful you didn't ask that. All right. Canaanite sanctuary <clears throat> city of Luz is now Bethel. Jacob's transformation by God has begun. And we're skeptical. We're a little questioning, but it has begun, as you will see in the, in the coming chapters. All right. Wow. I got a question. Yeah, Ed, please. Oh, absolutely. Okay, he's going to give a tenth back to God. In what form? How does he give God a tenth? Is he donating 10%? Is he? He gives it to the Open Door Mission. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to a shore or something like that. Now, um, that's really a good question. Like with Abraham, he gives it to Melchizedek, who is the, the prince and, and priest in Salem and so on. Um, as the tabernacle and temple, much later, it, it goes into the temple and tabernacle. You know, Ed, that's really a good question because the exact circumstance of giving a tenth back to God, we don't exactly know what that would have looked like. It could have involved, I, I'm giving this back to you, all of these things I will sacrifice to you. Because most of the measure, especially for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were nomadic herdsmen. That's how they were. But it would have been giving the, the animals back to God, presumably in sacrifice. That would have been the most reasonable way to think about that in terms of their circumstances, because there's no tabernacle. They, Abraham at Shechem, for example, builds an altar and sacrifices to God. It's a blood sacrifice, atoning for sin, and so on. That would be a part of that. Because part of the wealth that he has, he's giving back to God in the form of sacrifice. That's the best I can do and try to tangibly understand what is he giving back to God. That's the best I can do. Can I have a follow-up question, Jim, on that? Uh, hold on. One of the guys here in the room is asking. Then I'll get to you. Just a minute. That if then prayer. That's very convicting. I've prayed that so many times. Do I get into a mess and oh God, if only you'll get me out of this mess, then <laughs> I'll be perfect the rest of my life. And that lasts about an hour or a day <laughs> or a week. You know, I just, I imagine others have prayed that same thing. You know, just help me this time. And, uh, and I meant it. Every time I sincerely mean it. Yeah, I think that is something that often uh, we do. Yeah. <laughs> Would I be able to move on? Another question. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Fidel, uh, you had a question. Yes. So, I had a, uh, so if, is that 
where the tents started from basically for the nation of the Jews, not necessarily the Gentiles. Uh, is that? Well, uh, that's a really good question. In term, if you want to find an, an origin of it as a tenth, giving back to God uh, is, I mean, something that you see even with Cain and Abel, which is in Genesis 4. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but the idea of a tenth, the first, I think I'm right on this, the first we see of that is Genesis 14, with Abraham giving a tenth to Melchizedek. I believe that's the okay. first time in Scripture that's mentioned. Then it is sacralized, it's made sacred, part of the covenant when you, you read in Leviticus, and, and all of those are part of the covenantal relationship under the Mosaic Law. There it's, it's made a very important part of the obligation that a Jewish person owes to God under the law. Okay. Question. I, Just a, a quick follow-up on that, uh, besides the tithe. So Jacob, when he went to his uncle's house, Laban, did he had did he already pass through Bethel or Oh sure, he, absolutely. So he, he went to Pastor Bethel, went to his uncle's He's coming yeah, back he, to Bethlehem. He, okay. he starts in Beersheba. Beersheba is where his father and family live. He heads north, and look on that map on page 20. He goes to Bethlehem. He's in that Canaanite um, sacred city of Luz, and that's where he meets God, the ladder and all that stuff, and renames it. And then he keeps going north up to Haran, okay. out of Moran. And that, as I mentioned earlier, from Beersheba, up to, that's about 500 miles as the crow flies. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, and they're walking. He's 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 walking. I mean, that, that, but that in the ancient world, that's that's oh, yeah. what you did. Now okay. let's. It's twelve thirty, so I don't have a lot of time, but I want to get to the, uh, chapter twenty nine, and begin what is an extremely important stage two of God's transformation of Jacob. Jacob the conniver is going to be out connived. Jacob the deceiver is going to be out-deceived. Jacob the trickster is going to be tricked by Laban. You see, I keep saying, I just want you to get the point. He is going to meet somebody that's going to out-trick him. But at the end of the story, Jacob will out-trick Laban. And then in Genesis 32, Jacob's going to meet someone else that he can't out-trick. That's coming up. Then Jacob went on his journey. Literally in the Hebrew, Jacob picked up his feet, which has an interesting nuance to it. There's a new spring in Jacob's step. He's met God. So the language of the beginning of verse 1 is, is a tone of optimism, in Jacob, it's, it's expressed in the Hebrew idiom. Jacob has a new step. He's picked up his feet. He's no longer running just from Esau. He's now running with God, who promised to take care of him. To the land of the people of the east. Now, the, the people, that's an unusual way to put it. But that, again, is a Hebrew idiom, meaning... Outside the covenant land, he's in Mesopotamia. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. 
Now, we have to understand, again, if you're looking at the map, he's very close to Haran now. He's outside of the village where Laban lives. And so what he does is he sees this well outside of every major community there that's sources of water. He sees this well. Behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, where out of that well the flocks were watered. Okay, that makes sense. It's just a normal thing to see. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well, water the sheep, put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. That just makes sense. That's not difficult to understand. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. And he said, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? Why would he ask him that question? Because Rebecca said, You're going to Laban. Look for him. He is the one that's going to connect you with a girl that you're eventually going to marry. Don't know who it is yet, but you're going to find that out. And they said, oh, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? That's kind of an odd way, but how's he doing? Is he okay? <laughs> and they said, it is well. See, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Now, what word would you put right here in your margin to describe what's current? What word that characterizes God would you put in your margin? Providence. Providence of God. This isn't a coincidence. That it just happens that as Jacob comes outside this community where there's a well, and Rachel with the sheep are coming, that's not a coincidence. This is providence. God is in control of things. I've told you this before. Maybe I haven't said it in this group, but Chuck Swindoll, in one of his marvelous sermons, says, if we really believe in the sovereignty and providence of God, we should stop using words like chance, fate, coincidence. Are you willing to agree with Chuck on that? I mean, we should, if, if we really believe in the sovereignty and providence of God, then... I mean, would you agree with this statement? Things don't just happen in our life. If we really believe in the sovereignty and providence of God, there's really nothing such as a coincidence. Now that you're responding, so I'm not sure how you're processing that. But Move, moving in that direction. <laughs> yes. When you think about it, I'm 75. There's no reason for me to sit here with the things I've done. And, you know. So instead of all my lucky escapes, I guess they weren't lucky. That's right. That's exactly right. So it's very easy for me to accept the whole concept of sovereignty and providence on the big things like where you work or who you meet for mm -hmm. a wife or you know, those kinds of things where you live. I always wonder, though, how finite is this? <laughs> Coincidence. I mean, the fact that I, I don't know, Fred here, for example, I mean, that's, I'm sure that's providential. But the little things that occur in life, the little decisions, the little encounters, uh, and I, does this providence extend all the way down to those little tiny things that happen every day? What do you think? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I like the Where thing. does God draw the line? That's, 
Norton, does this mean? <laughs> well, that's what we said, we're moving now. Well, that's no, what I'm no, asking no. us. Is there a line? I, God's an awful busy God if he's doing all of the little things like what I have for dinner tonight. I think God can handle it. I, I really do. I think he can handle it. Well, Jim, I know you're asking, I mean, that is really appropriate question. You know what you're saying. I mean, it, it's appropriate uh, for us to think that way and to ask those kind of questions and even have just not maybe a degree of doubt, but does it really extend down to all of the moment by moment aspects of our 24 hour day? Um, you know, you guys, I, I, I want to answer, yes, it does extend down to even those seemingly little innocuous things of life. When you, um, when, when you read, I, I'm thinking like in some of the Psalms where the psalmist is reflecting on God's role in his life. You think of like Psalm 139, for example, which is a quite wonderful example of sovereignty and providence as David's reflecting on his God. And, uh, you know, wherever I go, God, you're there. I can't hide from you, and that's not necessarily what it means. It just means you're always there. Protective hand is always there. You think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I mean, you, you, you read those, and it's all figurative, metaphorical language and similes and all that stuff, but the psalmist seemed to be communicating as a part of his faith and confidence in God that everything I do, God, you're with me. There's nothing I do that's not important to you. And so I honestly, Jim, I, I, think, I think it does extend down to even those seemingly insignificant, innocuous, daily, routine things Makes perfect. I mean, yeah, I know it, it, it's just yeah. hard to imagine it. Yeah. But just to comprehend that. Yeah. I go to the grocery store and I want to buy this kind of English muffin, but they're out and this one's in. Okay. God's providence, you know. So I mean, I've I've, I've, I've been I've been with my wife uh, almost. It's June will be fifty three years. We married her. And she she absolutely lives this. If she goes to the store and one thing isn't available, and I say. Thank you, Lord, that you gave me. That's how she lives her life. And I've learned an awful lot from her because I, I, see, I see what she sees in her life, God's hands and everything that she does. See, you know, how to, however, seemingly insignificant it really is. And I am, I'm not always like that. I know God is in control of Vladimir Putin and the crazy thing he's doing in Ukraine. I'm going to start a European war the first time since 1945. God's in control of that. But, you know, is he really interested that I just had a delightful cup of coffee at this class? Yeah, I think he is. He motivated Fred to do a godly thing. <laughs> I had to interject some humor there. But it's, so, I, Jim, it's just, I really, I really want to believe that his sovereignty of providence does extend to this. His, Part of his his eye, I'm sorry. So I was just saying, if his eye is on the sparrow, he can probably handle what's going on at the uh, grocery store. Um, yeah. My, my, I've done a bit of study on this, and my my current um, my my current level of belief is that um, God is involved at least down to the quantum level, <laughs> where yeah. uh, where there is yeah. an uncertainty principle. 
that goes into the whole free will pre de destination argument. But uh, the, I, that doesn't mean it doesn't go below that level. But that's what I can. That's what I can see. Every cell division, every is, and the more you look, the more you find. <laughs> Well, I agree with that. Russ, in all my discussions with people, you were the first person to bring up Heisenberg's uncertainty principle <laughs> in a discussion like this. So, but I agree with you. I mean, it's just that's really fascinating that you brought that up. But it is, it is, it's, it's an important thing, it meaning the sovereignty and providence of God, is an important thing for us to think about meditatively. It really is. And that's what Sundal is pressing us when he said it that way. If we really believe in the sovereignty and providence of God, then our words like chance and coincidence and randomness and all those things that we often talk about, we probably should eliminate them. And we're still going to use it. <laughs> but it's just, it's our theology. Listen, I get a little thing in my inbox every Friday from a guy named Mark Galley. And I'm sure none of you have heard him, but he had a really interesting thing last Friday. He said, my parents, he's about my age, uh, I'm 74. And he said, my parents used to talk about God all the time. And what he meant by that in their conversation, they would talk about the Lord and, you know, in what he was doing during the day. He would talk about his dad, his mom. And he said, you know, in so many people's lives, people I know, this is Galley speaking, people don't talk about God on a regular basis. God is not a part of their conversation. And he said on a regular basis, and he said, I want to encourage people to bring discussions about God back into your daily conversation. Talk about the weather, sure. Talk about ball sports, sure. But he said, instead of and he's using it instead of watching, you know, cable news programs where you get all turned up and all the things you get excited about and all those things, turn that off and start thinking about God. Start thinking about his attributes. Start thinking about his goodness. Talk about him. Talk about, read his work. And, you know, I, it, he's not trying to make this legalistic performance stuff. It's just that I think he's on to something there. Because if we yes. really, really believe the God of the Bible, who is sovereign and his providence is real and his redemptive program is going forward no matter what happens, shouldn't we be on board with that? Be talking about him with others? Hi, Jim. As a, as a part of that conversation, I was able to eliminate television and cable to focus more on that you know and and i'm like wow but back then cable was 14 dollars a month and i'm like well i'm saving for 14 dollars <laughs> it's a little higher than that today isn't it yeah 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 well but, uh, i saw psalm 139 you know as i was reading up in uh, verse uh, 16 where it says the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them that just kind of like throws me off a whole lot because with the conversation that we're having, it's like Scott, God has been through every door that we have yet to pass or have already passed. Yeah. Why not go to him for everything? So yeah. that just kind of, you know, blows me away. 
Well, that's that's really that's really a, an, an important verse in Psalm 139, as as a lot of those verses are. David's reflections on God in his life in Psalm 139 is a good reminder of what we're talking about. Mm. David is reflecting on God, reflecting on God's role in his life. And he's reviewing, among other things, God's attributes. But what does that mean to me? That God is omnipresent. What does that mean to me? That God is omnipotent. What does that mean to me? Not just that he has the power to set all the the planets and the stars and all that stuff in motion, all the wonderful things about the, the heavens. But yes. he knows every single day before, and that's Davis, and before yeah. I was born, every day of my life was laid out. Wow. I've been thinking that's, a lot lately about yeah. Isaiah, or not Isaiah, but Psalm 40, verse 5. <clears throat> Many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us that cannot be recounted to you in order. Mm-hmm. I would declare and speak of them that are more than could numbered mm. a big book mm. a lot of thoughts about us anymore. yeah that's right that's a great that's a great psalm that's a great verse mm. that's why uh, and as you guys are doing and, and for those you were doing take the psalms and reflect on what the psalmist is talking about thinking about reflecting upon meditating upon and it's always about god it's always about god <laughs> As he laments and rails at God, because you understand what's happening, he keeps coming back. But I don't have anywhere else to turn. I don't have anywhere else to get my answers. So it's worship. He ends up in worship. And that's important for us today. That's why Galley, the guy I was mentioning earlier, Galley's on to something. And he said, I, and this is what he said at the end of the little essay, I've committed myself to try and focus more on God throughout my day instead of the circumstance. That's a, that's, a, that's a very powerful statement because we have a tendency to be circumstance-controlled people. We're always responding to circumstances. And that obviously, that's life. But Galli is saying, let's be able to rise above that and not be circumstance-controlled, but be God-controlled. Our focus is on God. And that's, uh, that's a nice little sound tidbit of advice that he's giving, which I think is extremely biblical. Now, I have got to quit. I just looked at the clock and my watch. The Filipinos say this is a dot on my wrist, and I feel that. I'm going to have to quit. I'm sorry, but uh, I hope this has been good. Thanks for all the contributions, the good questions, both online here as well in the room. It was a, it was a good session. I'll start again with Chapter 29. We only got into it at the beginning, and we'll get this. This is where he meets Rachel and Laban and all the stuff that happens as he's out for a time out seat. Father, we study about Jacob, and we see you graciously, magnanimously choosing Jacob as the covenant son, and you've just revealed to him the covenant promises. Jacob, you're my man. You're going to be the one through which the covenant's going to proceed, and I promise to be with you. And I mean, David, Jacob did not deserve that. And we see the beginning of the transformation of Jacob. We're going to see it next week as we look at how Laban treats him and out deceives him, but this is all your hand. And Lord, we talked here at the end about your sovereignty, your providence, and how far do we press that? How much of our lives is really under your care and providence? And Lord, that's one of the things that I think the psalmist helps us to reflect upon. There's nothing outside of your control, nothing outside of your purposes. Everything that's a part of our life you're using. Lord, I think Galley's right. We need to be focusing more and more of our lives and just talking about God, reflecting on you, 
meditating about who you are and what you've done for us. And maybe set aside some of the stuff that we get almost addicted to, just listening to some of the cable news stuff. Not that that's not important, but that's not all there is. So, Lord, we're just thankful that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the salvation you offer to us through Christ. Now, as we go into the rest of our day and the rest of this week, be with these men online here as well as in the room. May they be the vessels and channels of your grace to others. May they represent you as the salt and light, as strong men of faith. Commit each one of them to you in the name of Christ. Amen. See you next week.